Hey, Ben. What's going on, man? Hey, I like your haircut. Your haircut looks good. Thank you. Thank you. We uh, got a haircut today. Decided it was uh, about time. Um, and I need a haircut myself. And you do need a haircut. Neither one of us have a have a hat on today, which is yeah. rare for, for us. Were you able to get outside today? Yeah, I took a little bike ride uh, after work. Uh, walked home and ate lunch. So um, I love daylight savings time. Golly, it's been like a dream right now and uh not so great in the morning uh well actually i've i've had trouble going to sleep like it's hard to get uh, asleep before uh really before like 11 30 midnight for me right now so uh yeah, I know. Ye yesterday monday um is the day when the the most workers are tired in the u.s That's really the most unproductive day in the of the calendar year for workers because That's interesting. they just want to nap when they switch to daylight savings time. But um, I like it. It kind of energizes me and I don't care if it's a little dark when I get up. I, I agree. You know, so I agree. Uh, well, we got some, we got some great, uh, great questions, but before we do that, give me a quick uh, update. It's been a week since our, uh, since our last show, give me an update on what you're seeing in the office. Um, one thing we're not seeing is COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we've maybe had one sporadic case that called in earlier in the week. Um, pretty mild case, but we're just not seeing it, you know. And I don't hear from Dr. Fauci anymore, so it must be gone. <laughs> you know, I know that it's kind of peaking in uh, yeah. Hong Kong and China right now. Mm -hmm. You know, mostly probably because they they locked it down before, and now it's kind of spreading because of the lockdowns. Uh, so eventually, and I think it's mostly Omicron. So I think probably it'll run through there kind of like it did here in January and a little bit of February. And I predict that it'll hit Australia the same way because they've been so stringent about their lockdowns. They're going to open back up and everybody's going to get it, you know, and it'll, it'll be done with. So, uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but they never should have done the lockdowns anyway. Um, Agreed. Totally foolish. So... Um, disruptive and foolish in my opinion, but that's only my opinion. Um, well, I agree with you there and, uh, I am, I'm thankful that, you know, we're, we're seeing less of it and, uh, and hopefully, you know, uh, out of, you know, these Q and a shows we're we're able to communicate a lot about things that we can do for, uh, preventative measures, you know, building up your immune system, which, um, we think is proving to be the thing, you know, the thing to do. And, and uh, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, you want to dive into the first question here? Sure, sure. All right, I want to I want to do this one first because it it for one we missed it last week and and also uh, this has to do with your uh, common sense episode uh, today yeah. on brain fog. But just real quickly, because I know you you um, in the comments of last week's you, you you wrote an answer. But real quick, or what are your thoughts on L tyrosine for mental alertness? Yeah, maybe that's what spurred me on to talk about yeah. brain fog and the use of L-tyrosine, which we've used for years for uh, ADHD and um, some other things. But uh, mental alertness, brain fog, it really works really, really well. Um, a lot of times I'll use it for, um, try it for ADHD before I try a stimulant like Adderall. And a lot of times it makes Adderall work better. You know, one of the most gratifying things that I do in my practice is treat adult ADD. And, or it's ADHD and ADD are the same thing. 
it's really all termed ADHD. Um, there's three types of it. The first type, hyperactive, usually in smaller boys. Then the second type is inattentive, and you see that more in girls and adults. And then you have a mix of both. But, you know, mostly adults that I see are inattentive. They're not hyper. But so I use that term interchangeably, ADD with ADHD, but it technically should be ADHD. Uh, but yeah, I think it works really good for it. You know, it's um, it really if you, you need to go to my podcast from today to get a get a deep dive on that and how it increases dopamine and also serotonin and even the other neurotransmitters like epinephrine, norepinephrine. Um, but the main one it acts on is dopamine, and um, so it really it's really good to, to it makes people more creative, calms them down. Uh, and, you know, you may be able to get by with that instead of having to use a stimulant. Again, I have no problems with using stimulants uh, as well. But and I like it particularly. So I like L-tyrosine. I've used it for years um, and I like it to give it in the morning on an empty stomach. And then um, a lot of times I'll add uh, L-tryptophan in the form of 5-HTP, the active one that gets in the brain at night because it kind of acts synergistically with it. So I think that combination is really good. If you have brain fog, you know, we're seeing a lot of brain fog post COVID and we're going to see a lot more brain fog. I mean, all the studies that came out last week that, that uh, showed that, um, you know, people that have had COVID, especially ones that had a lot of uh, loss of smell, uh, and actually loss of gray matter in their brains, that, that good gray matter that helps you process things. So I think we're going to be seeing a lot of it, and certainly uh, supplementation is going to be good, and that's a really good supplement for people that are thinking about it. Watch out if you take, because it also has to do somewhat with the formulation of uh, your thyroid hormones. So if you're on thyroid hormones or you have uncontrolled hypertension, um, or if you have Parkinson's or, or own other serotonin drugs like Prozac and Selexin and Cymbalta and those things, you need to talk to your uh, doc before you start on this. But um, it's, it's, it's pretty safe. You just have to know what you're doing. But uh, great supplement for mental alertness. All right. And let's go to, um, let's go to a vitamin D question um, that was interesting here. Um, I've recently been told that one should not supplement with vitamin D because it's actually a hormone. What little research I've done indicated that it is, in fact, a hormone. Is it safe to supplement? Um, you know, uh, vitamin D is definitely a hormone. Uh, what's, your, what's your thoughts on that, and, and why might someone be scared uh, of it being a hormone in, in particular? You know, people get scared with the word hormone because they automatically think it's safe. Is that going to cause cancer? There couldn't be anything more ridiculous than worrying about vitamin D causing cancer. It prevents cancer. It is a hormone. That just means that it's a substance that makes another part of your body uh, react to it and produce something. And um, so vitamin D is a hormone. It comes from the sun when it hits your skin and turns into vitamin D. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I can't go off enough on vitamin D and the, the benefits of vitamin D. I think if, if everybody in this country had had a, a good vitamin D level, then we wouldn't have had all the deaths we saw with um, uh, 
with COVID-19. Certainly we know that vitamin D, there's no, there's no doubt in anybody's mind, any scientist's mind now that, um, you know, vitamin D is a necessary um, hormone. So it is a hormone. It's not a vitamin. You're exactly right. It's a hormone. So don't be scared of the word hormone. You know, you need hormones. You want hormones. You just have to, um, I mean, you can't confuse that with the other hormones because uh, they work differently. But um, so um, don't be scared of the word hormone. And certainly vitamin D is, but it's a very helpful hormone. That's what we ought to call it, the helpful hormone. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, don't be scared of it. Take it, get your levels checked. I check them every day, many times a day. Get your levels 60 to 80. And when you get sick, pop your your hormone supplementation way up for about five days and you'll, you'll get better a lot quicker. Uh, so keep that vitamin D level up. Great, great question. Uh, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Cause um, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure more and more people are thinking that and we don't know it. Um, so, so thank you for bringing that up. Uh, it is in fact a hormone and um, you know, for anyone that, that uh, you know, scares off, hopefully, you know, that little, uh, you know, uh, dialogue that, that doc just, uh, just did will, will help you out there. Um, now I'm going to get to, to berberine because, uh, I see that D Lynn had a question about berberine. Um, uh, so D Lynn, maybe this, this will answer your question because we had a few come in, uh, during the week on email. Um, I'm going to start with, uh, this because it's more specific and then we'll go to kind of a general berberine question. How much berberine should you take daily to help with insulin resistance and fatty liver? Should it be taken before or after meals? Um, really, they say you should take berberine three times a day, kind of like, you know, metformin. But um, I think twice a day is probably reasonable. 500 twice a day is usually the dose. Um, but berberine's great. You know, it really not only helps um, you take care of that insulin resistance that you may have, it probably works about as well as metformin without the gastric side effects. Now, I do recommend you start out at once a day and then advance it because kind of like metformin, it could cause a little bit of gastric upset, not near what metformin will. But it also helps a bunch of other stuff, too, besides um, diabetes or prediabetes. And it's a great it's a great way to start <clears throat> for people that are overweight, that have insulin resistance, that crave carbs and all. Um, but it comes from a plant and, um, kind of like metformin comes from a plant. Metformin comes, I think from lilacs, but, um, berberine comes from a berberine bush. Um, but, uh, it certainly it should be taken twice a day and <clears throat> build yourself up to that. See if it upsets your stomach. Um, and I particularly like to give it before meals, but, um, you know, it's so hard to time these things sometimes. So make, just make sure you get done eventually twice a day. 500 twice a day and, you know, and see what it does. It'll lower your A1C. It'll also help lower your cholesterol if you're worried about your cholesterol. So it, it works for all the facets of uh, metabolic syndrome. So, um, you know, I take it. I like it. And I um, think you should try it, especially if you're insulin resistant. Um, okay, let's, let's go to this more general question. And, you know, you, you've talked about uh, berberine here. Uh, you didn't mention any serious side effects, um, anything that you kind of coach patients on uh, from the size, side effect standpoint? Just the stomach uh, 
possibly some stomach issues is the only thing I've ever seen about it. But like I say, it's, it's a lot better tolerated on your gut than certainly metformin is. And metformin is a good drug, you know? Um, so I think it's, but it's a good, berberine is a very good place to start along with a low carb diet and it's probably some intermittent fasting, especially if you're a little overweight and insulin resistant. Okay. Um, so like I say 500 twice a day, um, see how your stomach tolerates it, but I rarely see any problems with it. Do you, um, like, I don't see lactic acidosis like you occasionally see with, um, metformin. Uh, you said twice a day, you know, preferably before meals. Is there a certain time period that you want to make sure, um, is between, uh, the first and second dose per day? Not really. Just take it with before the two meals you're going to eat a okay. day, lunch and supper. All right, guys. Uh, D. Lynn, I, I see you. Um, so uh, glad that that got your question. Motaz, what's going on, man? Great to see you in here. Uh, Sue, hello, hello. Uh, great to see everybody coming in tonight. I'm so pumped to uh, to have you guys here live with us. Um, okay, let's go to uh, a let's see a magnesium question. Magnesium is either citrate or glycinate. Okay, uh, this is for bone health in particular. Yeah. Um, I do, you know, there's about, I think there's about eight to nine different forms of magnesium and, uh, they each have a little bit different mechanism of action. Certainly if you're constipated, mag citrate's the way to go, but you know, I, I think you should get the other stuff in glycinate's great for your brain. Uh, the one I, I alternate, uh, mine every other night, one night I'll take the life extension, uh, 500 magnesium which has citrate, uh, succinate and oxide. And the other night I'll alternate, I'll take neuromag, which has magnesium three and eight. But I think of all the forms, I think the glycinate and the three and eight are probably my favorites, unless you're just taking it purely for constipation. Uh, and then certainly the citrate, uh, is probably the best form, but get one that has a combination or even alternate them a little bit. Um, Great question, though. For Which, bone health, I mean, it is essential for bone health, along with a multivitamin that has boron in it, of course. And uh, but of course, D with K um, for bone health and and all. But uh, but magnesium, take it at night. It relaxes you, helps you sleep, prevents cardiac arrhythmias, helps uh, with your bowel movements. It's just a great, you know, it's a cinch. It's really one you really need as an adult. So I'm hearing the magnesium three and eight, uh, and as well as the, uh, citrate, you said, is there, would you ever glycinate? Glycinate's a great one. Okay. Um, just, know. just kind of based on depending on what you're, what you're needing. Yeah. Yeah. And a combination is probably best. All right. Uh, what we'll try to do is we, we did write up a post on, uh, magnesium a while back. I'll try to dig that up and, and get that back into the, uh, into the social spheres. Um, okay, let's do, let's do this one here. Um, what do you know about AG1 uh, Athletic Greens? Uh, what's your thoughts? Oh, yeah, I love Athletic Greens. Uh, you know, that's one that Peter, Dr. Peter Atelier loves, and I think Mark Sisson even likes that one, the Daily Apple, Mark's Daily Apple. But, yeah, it's just a good, um, you know, it's a good powdered substance that you put in water and drink it every day. I love it. Uh, tastes good, and it's not cheap, but it certainly supplies you with um, 
all the mighty dozen vegetables that you that you need. Um, so it tastes decent, and I like it. It doesn't have a lot of sugar in it. Like some some of these green drinks, they put a lot of sugar in it. You got to be careful about that. Um, all right. Hope that helps. Um, let's go to a, a COVID question. Um, I tested for COVID-19 last year, tested positive. Uh, my cardiologist is now recommending I should take a pulse, P-U-L-S, test. What is a pulse test and what's it for? I forget what that stands for, but I have heard of it. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure it's a it's a blood test that tests for plaque instability. You know, when you, you're thinking about heart attacks and strokes, it's really um, <clears throat> several things that can contribute. The most one's plaque instability. Um, so I think there's several different markers that they use on this test. Um, I think one of them maybe even hemoglobin A1C, which is a test for insulin resistance, diabetes. Um, but I can't, I think they may, that test may have one for growth factors and uh, some of the ones you've never heard of and I've never heard of, but you know, it's, it's marketed by a company to detect early on this presence of unstable plaque, but it's just a, it's a combination of different markers that um, that may be useful. It's something I think is kind of new. I haven't run one yet. I don't know if I doubt insurance is going to cover it, to be honest with you, because it's an independent test. I don't know if it's FDA approved, which doesn't mean a lot. But, um, you know, there's uh, certainly some credence in checking some of these things. Uh, you know, with our Cleveland Heart Panel, you know, you can get a, a, a LP plaque 2 test, which detects for um, unstable plaque, um, and certainly your oxidized LDL, which is on the Cleveland and CRP, um, homocysteine, a lot of inflammatory markers are on there. So I don't know if this thing will come to pass. It's a great test. It'll be covered. It'll be affordable. I don't know yet. I think the jury's kind of out on it. Um, you know, I, I still believe that, um, getting a Cleveland heart panel, uh, getting a coronary calcium scoring, which really just detects calcium plaque in your coronary arteries, which it seems to correlate pretty well with, um, you know, plaque in your arteries overall. It, it doesn't look at soft plaque. So if I'm worried, I'll, I'll really, I will get a, um, a carotid IMT, intimal media thickness test, uh, we do those at our office once a month. They come up from Atlanta to do that test. It's not just looking for carotid blockage. It's looking for uh, the thickness of that innermost uh, part of your endothelial lining, and which is a really good measure of what's going on in your coronary vessels as well. Um, so that's that's a really good test for soft plaque. You know, soft plaque is the one that that can get unstable through inflammation, rupture, boom you have a heart attack or a stroke. Um, so, I mean, usually we get a pretty good clue by the tests we do anyway as to whether or not you have risk. And um, then you start doing something about it. I mean, if a test is there but you can't, you can't do anything about it, what's, you, know, you need to be able to do something based on a test. Otherwise, you have an unnecessary worrisome test. So, you know, you can 
put somebody on aspirin every day, make sure their blood pressure is normal. They don't have diabetes. They don't smoke. They don't have insulin resistance and obesity, low vitamin D levels, uh, high cortisol levels. So, um, you know, you need, you need to really uh, do all those things as well to help the patient. Um, I mean, you can test somebody to death, but what are you going to do about it? A lot of the same stuff anyway, because um, you almost can, you can't always predict it, but you pretty much know who's more at risk than others for, you know, heart attacks and strokes. So certainly I, I like taking an 81 milligram aspirin. I've, I've been taking one since age 40. Also a lot of evidence that that cuts down on colon cancer risk. So unless you have a high risk of bleeding or a gastric ulcer, you should probably be taking an 81 milligram aspirin, you know, to protect your heart. There's, it's a little bit controversial, but believe me, every cardiologist that I know takes it. And I certainly have for years. So, um, so yeah, I mean, we, we have a lot of tests to, to check markers and a lot of, uh, tests to look for plaque, but, uh, the main thing is that, uh, try to be pro proactive and preventative. So, and I think a Cleveland panel does pretty well for that, but it could be the PULS pulse test may be useful. There was another one called the endopat test that uh, I thought about getting, but it, the machine is about $10,000 and you know, it's kind of it has to do with, takes about 20 minutes using a blood pressure cuff, but it's, you know, probably one of those things that, um, kind of a fad. Now, I don't know about the pulse test. It may, it may come back as something we always use, but, uh, not yet. It's not really widely used that I know about yet. At least not my circles. So. All right. Thank you for, for that question and, and, and putting that on our radar. Um, let's go to a K2 question here. Uh, switch to a life extension, low dose K2, uh, the MK7 form, uh, from the K1, K2 combo. The K2 is 45 MCG, so would need four of them for your recommended dosage. Can I take all four together or need to spread them out? Uh, you could take all four together if you wanted. Um, you know, um, the thing about MK7, it has a long half-life compared to MK4, which is the other major form of vitamin K2, MK4, MK7. MK7 just proven to be although there's less studies on that than MK4, but uh, from most of the literature that I read and I believe in, um, I think MK7 is, is the better one because it's long racking. So you could take four of them. Um, you know, I, there's, there's also one put out by orthomolecular that I like a lot that has 180 milligrams of uh, MK7 that you could consider doing and taking just one pill. So, um, that's something you may want to think about and get your K1 through uh, your green leafy vegetables and maybe athletic greens, you know, that drink. So great question. Um, All right. Thank you for that question there. Um, let's go to, this is one we kind of, we, we touched on this topic a little bit last week. Um, but uh, this is, this is a question we get every day in the office. Uh, so, uh, we're happy to keep, um, you know, answering any of these, you know, hormone questions because um, we feel like, you know, hormones are, are, are not uh, uh, educated enough on. So uh, we can't talk about it enough. Uh, is it dangerous for a woman over 60 to do BHRT, bioidentical hormone replacement therapy? Um, 
It'd be dangerous if you didn't know what you were doing, for sure, especially if you're using synthetic hormones, if you didn't measure and see where you're at, um, or if you can't, you already have um, estrogen or progesterone uh, receptor positive breast cancer, then you don't want to do it. But, um, you know, in my opinion, it's more dangerous not to do bioidentical hormones for a woman over 60 because you're going to get brittle. You're going to, your chances of getting demented are much greater. Chances of breaking a bone and dying is greater. Uh, plus, uh, you know, your life's just going to be better with it. Um, you're going to age better, your skin, your hair, your energy levels, your libido, your muscles, you'll decrease fat. Um, you have more vitality. Um, and remember, bioidentical hormones do not cause breast cancer. Um, I have a lot of women that come in. My sister had breast cancer. My aunt had breast cancer. Um, should I, you know, I, there's no way I could take hormones. Well, you can take hormones. Get your mammograms. If, if you're suspicious or you may have the BRCA gene or, you know, you're o overweight, you're smoking, you know, a lot of times I'll have people that come in and, and they're really getting nitpicky about worrying about uh, taking bioidentical hormones, which come from plants. They don't come from pregnant horse urine estrogens. Uh, they don't contain estrone, if you know what you're doing. Um, they come in and they're overweight. They may be smoking and they're, they're going to, you know, worry about, about that, you know, which they should be worried about their weight and quitting smoking you know, get rid of their diabetes and that type of thing. Uh, so no, it's not dangerous for most women over 60, even with a family history of breast cancer. Uh, but however, you do need a, a, yeah, an up-to-date pap smear mammogram. You need the levels checked. You need to do low dose of bioidentical hormones and you need to be followed for it. Um, you know, remember, Hormone therapy is not just for hot flashes or night sweats or to get you over the mood changes that may occur with menopause. They're to protect your bones and your brain uh, as well as your vitality. So, uh, no, don't be scared of taking bioidentical hormones in the hands of somebody who knows what they're doing. Be scared not to take them. Um, and, and don't listen to doctors that aren't well-versed on hormone therapy. They're just, they're not. I mean, most doctors uh, know nothing about hormones at all, you know? Um, so, and a lot of times what doctors don't know about, they tend to poo-poo because they think they know everything. They don't. Um, so talk to somebody who does a lot of it, who you feel comfortable with, who has expertise in that area and be monitored. You never willy-nilly haphazardly start, start somebody on hormone therapy and they need to be monitored with levels, et cetera. Mm -hmm. it's, it's that's well, a good answer. No, it's, a, it's, it's well said. And, and one thing I will say, guys, you know, for you uh, that are with us live or if you're listening to us on the on the podcast on a later date, you know, if you know if you know anyone that that is afraid of hormones, you know, they think it's too late for them or they're concerned with, you know, with what they've heard, things of that nature. Bring them to the to the live q and I, I think, you know, this is a really safe place to talk about any fears you might have with with hormone therapy and, and, uh, we can get real specific or we can get, you know, uh, super general. Um, so, uh, so if you know somebody that, you know, that is afraid, you know, tell them to come here on Tuesday nights and, and hopefully we can, we can help out through, through education and, and, um, you know, just telling, telling them, uh, our experience with it. 
So you know, Ben, what what is dangerous is uh, getting old, <laughs> <laughs> letting nature take its course. That's what's dangerous is getting old and ignoring what you could do about it. I mean, you're not looking for normal; you're looking for optimal. The plain fact is. You know, you may spend the second half of your life in menopause or andropause and, and hormone depletion, and you're going to suffer for that uh, most likely. So, um, you know, aging is the biggest risk factor for disease, including cancer, um, uh, except for maybe smoking and obesity. Those are the two biggest. But uh, age is up there, so you got to start looking at, looking at yourself and and doing these things that you can do to, to make your life better. All right, let's get to the to the next question here. Let's see where are we at. This is a, um, gosh, it wasn't too long ago. It might have been uh, six months to a year ago. Gosh, no, maybe maybe not that long. Where you did a uh, freestyle Libra. Um, the question yeah. is: Do you think if I tried the free Fourteen day freestyle Libra that my insurance would know about it and possibly use that against me later to imply that I had a pre existing condition. This is a this is a really good question. <laughs> What's your Man, thoughts? Man, I don't know. You know, that's a great question. You know, I know one thing about like if I start somebody on metformin, I, I have it in the office. It's dirt cheap, and I dispense it from the office so you don't go get a script filled, and then it gets all over that you're taking metformin. Oh, that must be a diabetic. So uh, you know, I'm not going to give them a life insurance policy. I've seen that happen. I really have. Now, apparently with uh, maybe one of the only good things that came out of Obamacare was the fact that they eliminated the pre-existing conditions. I think it's still in play a little bit, but it's not supposed to. It's not legal to deny somebody for pre-existing conditions to have health insurance. Uh, but life insurance, heck, that's off the table. I mean, they, it can affect you. So, um you know, the free 14-day trial, they're probably going to ask you for your insurance card. So that that's a really good question. I don't think it would affect your health insurance, but it could affect your life insurance. But all it would take really is a, a, with life insurance, you just have to write a letter and from the doctor explaining what was going on and that they're not diabetic and et cetera. So, you know, um, I would still try it. You know, I certainly did. So I'm not worried about it. Um, you know, I don't care about life insurance anyway, to be honest with you. I want my kids to earn their way when I die. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ben. I canceled my life insurance when I turned 65. I figured I didn't need it anymore. Why would I? I guys, you know, I'm not going to keep paying that. I'm going to keep paying that. You know, you may have some inheritance, but, you know, it won't be a life insurance policy. I don't believe in it. I do when you're younger. You need a term life insurance when you're younger. Remember, guys, I'm a businessman, too. I have an MBA, and I know what I'm doing with business, okay? So if you ever want some practical advice on your business life, too, come see me because it relates to your health a lot, too, okay? I'm, pr I'm, so, I'm, sure, we, I'm sure we pissed off some, some insurance brokers here, maybe, but, but that's you know, what That's the other thing about getting old. You don't care who you piss off. You really don't care. You just tell, what, you tell it how it is. <laughs> my dad told me that as he got older. He says, I just, I'm pretty honest with people. I just tell them what I think. I really don't care. So I'm at that point. So, um, you know, but you do need it if you're younger and you have a family, of course. But yeah. once you've kind of made it, your kids have their own jobs and you're going to leave an inheritance anyway, you know, you don't need a huge life insurance policy. Plus, if you get the term life insurance like you should be, 
throughout, you know, like during your working days and your family's growing and all, and you have responsibilities, maybe a mortgage or whatever, college expenses, then you should have one. But, you know, um, you want your kids to kind of make their way anyway. And plus, when that term life insurance runs out, when you get about 60, 65 years old, it's unbelievably expensive. It's not worth it, you know? Um, so uh, put it in Bitcoin or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe even spend it, you know, while I'm here, let's just spend it. <laughs> get you, a, get you a guitar. Um, yeah. Uh, it's it's a great question. Thank you for that. And because uh, we 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 have talked a, a lot about the value of the freestyle libra. Um, so uh, what I'm hearing there, guys, is is it might affect life insurance. Will not. Will most likely will not affect your insurance premium, um, which I'm assuming uh, or getting or getting health getting health insurance. Um, all right. So let's let's move on here. Let's see if I've missed any. Uh, I don't believe I have. Um, I right, cool. We're going to, um, we're going to get to the comments here. Um, and if you have a question for, for doc, go ahead and put in the comments. I see that, um, some have already put them in here. Thank you for, uh, thank you for that. What's up to everybody, uh, who's live with us tonight. Uh, this is my favorite part of the show. Uh, the last half we, um, take questions live. The ones that you just heard, uh, came in during the week. Um, let's see here. Where, where should we start? It seems, uh, D Lynn, I think we, we answered the, the Berber ring question. Uh, Jack, I see you, man. Thanks for, for being with us. Um, let's see. Uh, let's go to, to, to Andy here. Um, Andy Margaret, what are your thoughts on ozone therapy or hyperbaric oxygen treatment for long COVID and vaccine injury? What's your thoughts? I think they're good treatments for it. I really, you know, wish it was available to everybody. You know, I'm thinking about getting a hyperbaric chamber in my office. It's a, you know, a hard shell chamber that uh, is better than the soft shell. A lot, of, a lot of my friends have their soft shells at home. It's like a tent. Um, I'm not sure it's as effective as a hard shell where you can get the, the oxygen levels a lot higher. Uh, but I certainly think there's a lot of healing that goes on with the hyperbaric chamber. Ozone therapy, you know, I think it probably works. Um, you know, it's, I don't know of anybody around here that does it. And I'll most like to be the first, but, you know, oxygen is a healer. You know, oxygen is weird. It can break things down. It can also heal. But um, ozone therapy to your blood is, is probably a very effective treatment. Uh, maybe the most potent anti oxidant uh, thing we can do, and that's kind of oxymoronic, but um, and I will probably have another session once I dig deeper into maybe, you know, having that therapy available. Uh, but it is kind of a next level thing. So, you know, I, I certainly think if you have long COVID and, you know, you're suffering, if you can do either one of those therapies, I think it's probably helpful. Um, so great question. You're on top of it. You're, you're, you're looking at, uh, the future, you know, that's part of regenerative medicine, um, along with stem th cell therapy and certain other things that uh, will come into play. Um, thank you for that question, Andy. Margaret, um, I'm just going to put this up here from Keto Bandito. This is what the pulse um, test stands yeah. for. Uh, the PULS test uh, that was uh, re uh, that there was a question about earlier it stands for protein unstable lesion signature test. Uh, so, yeah. uh, thank you for that, uh, Keto Bandito. 
Yeah. Um, I let's go to um, Tammy's question on Facebook. Um, is it possible to reverse kidney disease? It can be hard. It just depends on what kidney disease it is. Um, certainly, you can stabilize it. Um, you know, I rarely see people go back to a completely normal kidney function if it gets to a certain point. And usually if you have kidney disease, um, it just means your kidneys don't filter like they used to through various mechanisms like um, diabetes, hypertension, taking too many nonsteroidal anti-inflammatories. Sometimes it's genetic. Sometimes you, you eat you have too much protein or your kidneys can't handle that much protein. It can cause that. Um, so, but it's certainly possible to stabilize it and to prevent it from, you know, getting to the point where you need dialysis and that type of thing. But so look at your other stuff first, you know, and, and watch it really closely. And certainly there are medications that can help ease the burden of your kidneys filtering blood. Um, uh, you know, I certainly like the infrared sauna for that uh, and detoxification, maybe finding out if you have a, a reason that you're, you have kidney disease, like maybe heavy metal poisoning or that type thing. Maybe you can chelate, use chelation to kind of help it. Um, I guess it just depends on how far it is along the process, but you want to kind of arrest that, uh, degradation of your kidney function for sure. All right. Thank you for that question, uh, Tammy. Um, let's go over to YouTube here uh, with Becky's question. Um, Becky asks, do you think a blood glucose levels running in 60s during the night while sleeping on keto is bad, um, no symptoms of low sugar? No, I really don't think so. Um, certainly if you're symptomatic, uh, you know, you need to think about it. But um uh, you must be monitoring it through a 24-hour glucose monitor, which is a great idea. Sometimes you'll get a little spike in the morning uh, because your cortisol goes up and it'll spike your sugars a little bit. Um, certainly, um, you know, it's I like um, intermittent fasting. Um, you don't have to do a full-on keto all the time. There's very few people I find can actually stay in ketosis. Um, they just, it's hard to do. And, uh, sometimes they don't feel too good on it. And it also can affect your thyroid and a few other things. I don't think long-term pure keto is a great way to go. That's why I like intermittent fasting. It kind of puts your body in ketosis part of the day. Um, but, uh, I'm glad you're monitoring those. Now, I know, I know from raising two type one diabetic kids, gosh, you know, they fortunately could recognize a low sugar in the middle of the night, but their sugars would go um, from 550 uh, before they went to bed to 25 at night and wake them up and they're very symptomatic. Uh, and it's, it's dangerous if you're a type one or you're on insulin, but if you're just doing a diet, you know, your liver is going to start kicking out a little bit of uh, um, glucose itself, uh, gluconeogenesis. Uh, glucagon. So it's rarely going to cause a problem. Your body has all these adaptive mechanisms f 
for it. And, uh, you know, even though you don't require, your body could get along with zero carbs. You, you die without protein or fats, but you could live a normal life with zero carbs. There are not, you, you do not have to have any carbs. But, you know, some carbs can be good, like vegetables and things. And, you know, certainly they carbs give you quick energy. So, um, but everybody's different too. Um, so you have to kind of know your own body. And a good way to do it is, you know, wear a continuous glucose monitor. Fantastic way. I can't wait till my aura ring starts monitoring that, you know. It's coming up with a PO2, you know, pulse oxygen. Yeah. Almost soon, so. Um, but anyway. All right. Thank uh, you. Thank you for that question there, uh, Becky. Um, I'm going to, let's see here. Uh, let's go to Kathy here. Uh, Kathy, thank you for, for being here tonight. Um, hey guys, I had a, uh, I'm going to, I'm definitely going to mess up some of these words, Kathy. I apologize in advance. I had a uvalectomy, a tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy done last week. Dang, it has been awful, but I stopped taking my 81 milligram aspirin about two weeks before. When do I start it back? Uh, hopefully I didn't butcher, uh, butcher too much of that. No, you did pretty good on those, Ben. You know, you, you must have had uh, some sleep apnea or some problems breathing or, you know, they take your uvula out, which is the part when you say, ah, that's a part that hangs down and uh, quivers. So uh, that's a painful, painful operation. And a lot of times they do it to help obstructive sleep apnea. And certainly if your tonsils are huge, your adenoids sit right there. Um, as an adult, it's a pretty, pretty painful way to go. The recovery's pretty good. But, um, you know, unless I, I think I would, for something that major, I would not want that to bleed. That's one area you do not want to start bleeding. So I'd probably wait four weeks and make sure I was check with the ENT doctor who did it and make sure uh, they're okay with you getting back on it. I mean, unless you had something pretty serious like AFib, but if you're just taking 81 milligram aspirin, you probably don't have AFib or any, you know, uh, mechanical heart valve or something. So in my own gut feeling, I was wait a month and I'd have it okayed by my surgeon. Um, I hope it works. I really do. It's painful. Um, Kathy, wishing you a, uh, a speedy recovery. Um, yeah. uh, so keep us, keep us posted. Keep us posted. Thank you for that, for that question. Um, okay, let's go to uh, Gene's question on uh, YouTube. Do you prefer triest or biest? And, and just real quick, just say what she's referring to. The form of estrogen uh, replacement. Those are biological hormones. But the unequivocal answer is bias. Never use triest because, especially if you're worried about cancer, I mean, triest has estrone in it. And that's the form that you don't want. That's the form that's produced more postmenopausally. It's more dangerous. You never use triest. You know, when bioidentical hormones are, first came out many years ago, a lot of people use that, and uh, but they found out that, um, you know, it's it's not safe to use. So use biased, which is estriol and estradiol. Those are the two components of uh, estrogens that you need, but do not take triest. And, and really, I don't use oral estrogens or oral testosterone. I will use oral natural progesterone, but, you know, a lot of people do, and it's probably okay, but... Um, I just use the creams of the pellets. Um, 
you know, but don't take triest. Just don't do it biased. All right. Uh, Good Gene, question. Great question. Gene, thank you for, for that question there. I know uh, a, a lot of people are, are thinking uh, the same thing. So thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, okay, let's go to uh, Ray's question here. What's up, Ray? Uh, my wife had COVID back in January, and it left her with one of her ears stopped up. Most days she can't hear anything from her left ear. Is there any uh, remedy for that? Yeah, well, um, you know, that ear needs to be looked at to make sure she doesn't have fluid behind it, that she didn't have a secondary uh, bacterial sinusitis. So she may have an ear infection, let's see if it hurts. But it, so it needs to be looked at um, and make sure there's no fluid back there. It may be just eustachian tube dysfunction, and she can use some Flonase to kind of open up that eustachian tube, or maybe even, um, you know, um, something like Sudafed that would open up the tube a little bit. Um, but yeah, it should be looked at, especially if there's any loss of hearing. I mean, she may have wax in her ear. It's hard to say. Hopefully it's been looked at. And if it looks normal, I would definitely try uh, Flonase or Nasacort, you know, nasal steroids. Um, and uh, think about using Sudafed to kind of open that up a little bit. Um, so it needs to be looked into for sure. Uh, but try that and Hopefully somebody will look in there and see what's going on with it and, and all. I saw that quite a bit, though. All right. Thank you for that question there, Ray. Um, let's get to – I want to get to, to Lisa's question here on Facebook. Uh, Lisa asks, can you still have gallbladder, gallbladder attacks with no gallbladder? I had gallbladder surgically removed eight years ago. You can. You know, there's a thing called a retained stone that gets in your bile duct that can occur much later. I've seen it. Um, sometimes to diagnose it, they have to do what's called an ERCP, which involves the gastroenterologist looking back down in there, visualizing the bile duct. Um, so yeah, you could. I mean, you definitely could have gallbladder attacks if you have a retained stone in that duct. And the other thing you might try is digestive enzymes because when you don't have a gallbladder, it's hard to emulsify or break down the fats. So a lot of times you think you're, you're having uh, right upper quadrant pain uh, from that. And also there's, you know, there's scar tissue and, you know, you can have a fatty meal and you can kind of maybe stimulate that uh, duct a little bit, but um, certainly needs to be looked into. Um, uh, there's some blood tests you can do and, if it keeps happening, you need visualization of that bile duct to make sure that's not happening to you. It can be fixed. All right. Thank you for, for that question, Lisa. Um, all right. Barbara um, on Facebook asks, have you heard of the supplement Lion's Mane? Um, and I do think yeah, I'll take it. Yeah. I do think you're spelling that right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I take Lion's Mane. It's, it's, it's really uh, from mushrooms. And it has a lot of uh, anti-aging benefits um, as well as antioxidant properties. Um, it's just a really good, and it's great for your brain. I guess that's the main reason people take lion's mane, which is a mushroom, is for cognition. And uh, so I definitely like it. I like lion's mane. 
All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that question, Barbara. Um, I want to get, um, let's see, where am I at here? Oh, we're at Kathy, uh, Kathy Grover here. Uh, can your hormones have anything to do with you not being able to lose weight? Yeah. I mean, without a doubt they can, you know, as your hormones drop, um, uh, you know, you're going to gain weight. Look at most menopausal women or women that have had a hysterectomy. They, they all gain weight around the middle. They start looking more like men around the middle. Um, so yeah, and a lot of times it's due to an estrogen progesterone imbalance um, or lack of testosterone, which builds muscle, which burns belly fat. And plus your metabolism kind of slows down as you go into to menopause, certainly. You can't eat what you used to eat, no matter if your hormones are even tuned up. Um, and even thyroid is a hormone. Vitamin D is a hormone, as we talked about. Insulin's a hormone. You need all these looked at. You know, come in and get a Cleveland and, and we'll look at your hormones. But certainly, and then, you know, you gotta know what you're doing with hormones. Like if you take too much progesterone, even a bioidentical progesterone, if you get too much of it in relation to your estrogen, you'll gain weight. So there's a balance of uh, estrogen to progesterone there. So certainly have a lot to do with your weight from a lot of different factors. Great question. Uh, thank you for that question, uh, Kathy. And we're getting some uh, some some lion's mane comments here. Uh, thank you. Uh, so good to see Steve, man. Uh, Steve, I love you, brother. Uh, he gets energy from lion's mane. Thanks for putting that in there. Uh, Barbara's asking where can uh, where can you get it? So uh, if, if anyone has recommendations. Uh, for Lions Main, put it in the in the comments there. We'll make sure to bring that up. Um, I do you know where you get yours? Uh, any I got mine down at Max, but uh, Medicine Mart. But you can order it off the internet. Is there a brand um, you like? It, I forget the brand I take. I have to get with you. I forget the brand I take. All right, mm -hmm. guys. If you have a uh, a brand you like of Lions Main, go ahead and put that in the comments for uh, for Barbara here. Um, I also have another type of mushroom that I take. I can dig it up. I'll show it to you, but it has reishi in it. And, uh, I think mushrooms are very medicinal. Um, but, uh, good question. I'll try to dig it out. All right. Uh, Cindy asks, what do you think of the carnivore diet for about four to eight weeks for oxalate dumping and a system reset? We have not got many carnivore diet uh, questions on this show. So this is great. I have a couple of carnivores in my office that love it. You know, they stay lean and muscular and, um, you know, I'm not against it. You know, certainly people are different in the way they can digest food. And if you're eating a ton of red meat, you know, it's good for some people, bad for some people. Some people just don't digest red meat really well. Not that all carnivores eat just red meat, but, Certainly, um, that's one reason I check a TMAO level on your Cleveland panel. It tells me whether or not you should be eating red meat or not. Um, and it all has to do with your gut microbiome. Um, so I'm not against it. I've heard it may help for, uh, you know, to get oxalate dumping, maybe get rid of some stones. But I, I haven't seen it as much as I've seen people use it uh, to kind of lose weight because it's, you know, there's not a lot of carbs. You know, to me, a, a lot of weight loss, of course, is about the carbs. But remember, you can get too much protein. We talked about putting too much pressure on your kidneys. So a lot of things interact. So 
just keep an eye on if you do that keep an eye on your blood work i'm not against it as long as you don't start feeling real bad but uh here's my lines mean right here you see that yes uh can you guys make that out um looks like host defense host event host defense mushrooms lion's mane for memory and nerve support um Okay, uh, thank you for that carnivore question. That's a that's a great question and, and probably a topic we need to talk more about. Um, I want to get uh, I see Roel's question here, um, and and then let's, let's you know Keto Bandito said he ate carnivore for five weeks. Uh, you have to include organ meat, um, so that's important to remember. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that keto. Uh, keto felt great on it. You know, it's weird how people feel different on different diets. My brother, who's uh, my 64-year-old brother has started running marathons, and he's he went exclusively vegetarian. Interesting. You know, and uh, he feels great. So I think you can feel great either either spectrum or maybe a mix, but people are just different. See how your gut reacts to things. So. Um, All right. Thank you for that. What's up, Nicole? Nicole, thank you for, uh, for being with us tonight. Um, let's get uh, Roel's question here. Uh, Roel... Uh, says doc since everyone is using earbuds do you recommend do you recommend cleaning our ears and how um and let's see yeah that's a great question that's a great question we're always cleaning that ears in our office you know katie our operations manager for some reason loves cleaning ear wax out that's her favorite thing in the world to do she's a great phlebotomist too but she loves to clean ears out so if you have your ears uh plugged up you need it looked at and she'll come running i mean i don't care what she's doing if she if she sees there's there's earwax she'll come running and do it for you we've got a gentle ear irrigator whatever you do do not stick a q-tip in your ear yeah listen to what your mom said never stick anything uh smaller than your elbow in your ear and it's hard to get your elbow in your ear have you ever tried to that <laughs> put your elbow and fit it in there you can't do it unless you're really flexible i can't do it but uh so, you know, some people do candling, you know, with, yep. with wax. Some people can drain it out. That There's, there's a few things that you can try uh, that may work. Um, I saw something new the other day that you could do at home that they claimed work. But if it's really packed in there, you know, we, we use a combination of slightly warm water and peroxide, hydrogen peroxide, and, and gently irrigate it out of there with this little thing and uh tends to work pretty good so if anybody has earwax uh you know come in and let katie clean them out for you <laughs> i hate doing it but <laughs> most of the other nurses don't like it but you know, uh shout out anyway. to katie gegley our operations manager uh she she runs the show guys so you, for anything you'll want to you'll want to go to her she i call her the performance medicine google uh i don't even call her by her name anymore i say google what's up um <laughs> let's get to uh let's get to heather's question here uh i haven't felt well for a year and have asked for my hormones to be checked and my doctors won't do it do i need an order to have them checked at your office no just come in and get the female hormone panel better yet go ahead and get the cleveland which will probably be covered by your insurance we'll have all the stuff we need including your hormones so you know it's not um, unusual that your doctor will not check it again you should not obtain any lab that you don't know what to do with 
So if they're not well versed on hormones, which they're probably not, then they shouldn't check it because they don't know what the heck to do with it. So um, they could at least maybe comply with your wishes and send you to somebody who does know what to do with it. And it's probably not going to be an endocrinologist. I can tell you that right now. They're not well versed on uh, hormones uh, as much as they should be, in my opinion. Um, that may not go over well with some of them, but, eh, you know, uh, it is what it is. But, uh, you know, again, I'm not looking for normal. I'm looking for optimal. But, yeah, certainly you can come in and get them and we can we can look at it and, and look at all your stuff and help you out any way we can. And you don't need an appointment to get uh, blood work. Just come in. If you get to Cleveland, maybe come in fasting. If not, I don't really care. I'll look at a non-fasting lab. Sometimes it's preferable to me to look at a non-fasting lab, as long as I know it when I'm interpreting the results with you. So, um, um, let's get. Uh, we're going to take uh, Anna's que question here, and then we'll we'll take um, the insurance question as well, and uh, and go from there, guys. Uh, Anna asked, "I was diagnosed with COVID December 21st with mild to moderate symptoms, and was sick for two weeks, mostly fatigue and coughed, and was diagnosed again March 3rd, uh, and symptoms basically the same." I received monoclonal antibodies the first time and had my vaccinations, it, be, it, it being only two months between. Did I really have COVID again that soon? Uh, I, I'm confused. You could have. I mean, I saw that quite a bit. I mean, you probably in December, you probably had Delta, which was worse than the Omicron variant. You, then you probably got Omicron. I saw that several times. Um, the monoclonals worked pretty good for Delta, but not they didn't work at all really for uh, Omicron. So um, I, I generally thought that the Omicron variant was a lot milder. People usually had a sore throat with that one for some reason. But they didn't lose taste or smell and they weren't sick for as long. And it didn't get into their lungs as bad. You know, I still treated it, of course. Um, but uh, but yeah, and it, it'd be interesting to see you only you had your vaccines uh, it, after you had your monoclonals, you probably had had your vaccines way before that, which, you know, as you know, it didn't prevent you from getting COVID. Um, so, yeah, you could have had it twice. There's no doubt. But again, you got to realize, too, that the, the testing, the, even the PCR is not a great test. I mean, you know, the, the rapid test had a lot of false negatives. Usually if you had symptoms and had a positive rapid test, you usually had you had COVID, I think. But if you had a PCR early on, um, you know, it depends on what cycle threshold they ran it through. Uh, and nobody knew, really ever knew, even the people running the test didn't know what cycle threshold they were testing for. I talked to one of the pathologies that, that ran the test through the hospital system. He didn't know what cycle threshold it was. I wouldn't tell him. So, you know, the higher cycle threshold and the more you pick up a common cold. So even the PCR test um, really wasn't great. So the testing wasn't great, um, but you, you could have gotten it twice for sure. Um, uh, even though like um, one of my nurses had a pretty bad case, case of COVID over a year ago, really bad case, recovered well. Um, and I checked her antibodies and they were really good, greater than 2,500, as high as it gets. And she was also double vaccinated and boosted and then uh, came down with uh, uh, Omicron while her antibodies were still greater than 2,500. 
mild case, but, um, you know, uh, so it's interesting. It's interesting. Does this change your answer at all? She uh, had her vaccines in February and March uh, of, uh, I, th- I think, 2021. Uh, so it'd be yeah, after. the last year. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Right. I didn't think you would have gotten them between after having COVID. Um, and again, in my opinion, you know, if you got vaccinated twice and you had COVID, you don't need the booster. Consider that nature's booster. It's better than a booster. And I saw a lot of people have really get sick with the boosters and have problems and wish they'd never had the booster. Um, but again, that's my opinion, but, um, but anyway, um, I, I want to get this in here just because, you know, it's a really good question and, and something that I don't think we can address enough. Cause I, I know it's a big concern, uh, for, for a lot of people. And, and, uh, so I'll kind of let you, let you take the, take the, the mic here with the, with the insurance question, you know, so do, do you, does performance medicine, um, take insurance? No. I haven't taken insurance for 16 years and never will. Now, and here's the reason why, because I do not want to work for an insurance company, you know, and it's done a great things for my practice. It's eliminated patients that didn't really want it, my health anyway. Um, but it's odd that that's all, that's always the first question people have when they see a doctor, did you take my insurance? Well, it's, you know, fortunately I did this 16 years ago. I made a decision not to take insurance because it really made me a bad doctor. You know, I was trying to find codes, be on a computer over here, had seven minutes to spend you. It was terrible medicine because the doctor ends up taking all his time being a data entry, you know, person trying to generate an eight page note that means nothing other than I'm trying to generate codes to get money from an insurance company. So it, it really puts, it makes a doctor it puts a hamper on them, makes them ineffective in my opinion. Again, remember I've done this for 36 years. So I, I should know what I'm talking about. I've done it both ways. Um, so I don't take insurance for an office visit. You can use your insurance for labs. If I send you for an x-ray or certainly, you know, any test I send for, you can file your insurance on it. I'm just not going to take all my time and all my staff time, you know, with talking to somebody on the phone, trying to get something covered. Uh, so it's, it's really done wonders for my practice. And I did it at a time when, um, everybody's deductible went real high anyway. And it was cheaper to see me, you know, and pay cash. than it was, uh, to go through your insurance and then get a bill three months later where you, you didn't meet your deductible and they had to, you know, double or triple your bill just to get 30 cents on the dollar. And so, you know, I, I should know what I'm talking about. Again, I am a businessman as well as a doctor. We're all business people. I just happen to study it especially with healthcare more than most, cause that's, that's a business I'm in. But, um, so it's been the greatest thing in the world, not taking insurance, you know, you know, I do my charity work as well. So, you know, don't think of it as a selfish thing. Think of it a thing that, that makes me a lot better doctor because I have a lot, I have a lot more time to spend with you. I'm not focusing on a, a computer in the corner of my room, trying to find a code and then going outside the room, being on the telephone with somebody who uh, is an insurance agent and doesn't know medicine, trying to me begging them to run a test or something. So it takes all that out. And as you know, now the way insurance goes, you can go to go to your pharmacy and ask them what the cash price is with good RX uh, compared to what your insurance will pay for it. It'll, most of the time, 
you're better off paying cash for it, to be honest with you. So that's kind of the way it is for me. You know, I try, try to make it affordable, um, you know, and we certainly uh, have a Quest Lab phlebotomist that does your insurance. If you want to, you can, if it's cheaper, you can pay cash for it. It's, you know, we have really low cash uh, lab tests too. So, but what it did for my practice, it was odd because everybody thought you, you're going to practice medicine and not take insurance. You know, you're going to, you're going to go out of business. And uh, I said, well, I'd rather go out of business than being a bad doctor and be miserable. And so what happened was interesting in that number one, I became a better doctor. I had to. And number two, I got better patients. Patients like you guys who really, you know, you can tell you guys care about your health. You want to take a little deeper dive into it than me have seven minutes to spend with you and say, you know, Kathy, your cholesterol is 230. I'm going to give you this lipitory, your blood pressure up. Let me start you on lisinopril. You, you may be diabetic. Let's get this going. CN3 muscle, do some more labs. Let me write up all these codes for it and try to get money from an insurance company. I'd rather have the patient pay for what they get. You know, like, like the old saying, you pay for what you get. And I certainly hope that I deliver that. You know, if I don't ever do that, you can have your money back. You know, at this point in my life, I'm, I'm here to help people. It's a business. Of course, I want to make money just like anybody else. And I actually did better not taking insurance than I did with insurance. I was a much better doctor, much happier. I don't want to retire. Most of my doctor friends are miserable because of EMR, electronic medical records, insurance companies and people telling them what to do that aren't doctors, you know, um, business people that just care about the bottom line. So that's what's happening to our healthcare system. It's getting hijacked by people that aren't physicians and we're paying the price for it. Look at the COVID disaster. Look at uh, pharmaceutical companies, you know, where the bottom line is more important than, you know, really the cure or the prevention of diseases. I think they make up diseases just to make a drug up, just to make money off of it. I really do. I think we got a, we're in a very corrupt healthcare system. And I'm just a, one of those lone figures out striking out against it. It's been great for me. You know, I could retire, you know, 10 years ago if I wanted to. I just don't want to because I know more than I've ever known. I like to help people and I love working. I love coming in and talking to patients like they were family members and trying to help them out. And also when COVID hit, it just really brought our practice to the to the forefront. And again, I'm not alone. There's a lot of doctors out there around the country doing the same thing I'm doing. I just maybe was one of the first. But I mean, there's a there's a lot of specialists starting to do what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see more and more of this. There's probably going to be a two tiered system, you know, a single payer government system. And you're going to have a next level like people like me that are willing to really, you know, take the be proactive with your health and, and take things that are, you know, like, for example, the COVID crisis. I mean, people that these docs that work for big corporations, they couldn't use the medicines to save people's lives because there was no double blind placebo controlled trial on them. But yet people were dying unnecessarily because they, they wouldn't give them early treatment. I mean, you don't go to the ER with COVID and be told there's nothing we can do. Go home when you can't breathe, come back, you know, we'll maybe put you on a ventilator you know, where you're going to die. As you see, I become quite upset about this. But uh, so COVID was a crisis of all epidemic proportions. 
and it exposed our healthcare system for what it is right now. So there's got to be people that take a stand, you know, um, and if you're one of the fortunate people that, that can go to a practice like mine, then you're going to be much better off, especially, you know, with the integrative medicine uh, fellowships and the people that really want to prevent disease and, and, you know, make you live your life optimally, not normal. You don't want normal. You want optimal. Uh, you know, in our country is such a sad state of affairs with all the obesity, the drug overdoses, the drug problems. And we've kind of brought it on ourselves in the name of the holy dollar and, you know, corporate greed, government control, all that kind of thing. So that's why I love my practice. And that's kind of, that's a long winded explanation on do I take insurance? So I hope, I hope somebody recorded this so that we can just play that over and over again in my front offices so people can explain why I don't take insurance. It's so that I can be better bottom line. You need insurance for disaster. That's the definition of insurance coverage for disaster. It's not for everyday routine care and colds and prevent. They don't pay for preventive medicine anyway. They don't, they're not going to pay for hormone analysis or, you know, weight loss stuff. They just don't want to do it. They won't pay for anything they don't have to pay for. Uh, and, they'll, and insurance companies will try to deny you payment for any little tweak in that note you say. So you end up spending more time trying to fashion this worthless note when you really haven't helped the patient. So, and, and it's also more private. You know, I have paper charts. You know, anything you come into my office, it's just between me and you. Nobody else is privy to it. So you, you have a certain protection there as far as privacy. You don't, you know, your insurance company doesn't know what we're treating you for. So um, it turns out great. I just love the way I practice. And, you know, I took kind of a bold move years ago. And um, I was just at that point in my career where I was frustrated and, you know, I wanted to really be a more effective, happier doctor. And it certainly turned out well for me. I've put a lot into it. I mean, as you can tell, I do a lot of study, a lot of research. I have a lot of hopefully common sense and practicality. And I like to, you know, the other thing, you know, if you go to a doctor, that, that should be a fit doctor that takes care of you. You know, I mean, who's going to listen to an obese doctor sitting there tell you to lose weight? And you ask him how, and they say, well, no, exercise more, eat less. It doesn't work. Um, it's more, more complex than that. It's hormonal. It's metabolic. It's genetic. It's psychological. Um, there's a lot of things to it. So um, anyway, so that's that's why I don't take insurance. And uh, but anyway, no, I, you know, you hit the nail on the head there. And, and you know, I hope people uh, will watch that a couple a couple of times because, you know, it does really explain uh, why, you know, our practice doesn't take insurance and why other practices aren't taking insurance now. And, you know, one thing we, we like to we talk about a lot is, you know, the the transactions between the patient and you, not necessarily you and the insurance company and and it changes the entire dynamic. It changes the way uh, the way that you know the medical provider talks to his or her patient uh, when it's just them two versus a third party uh, that has to be dealt with. Um, so uh, I, I think I think that that is the most uh, 
interesting part of performance medicine, uh, and and what we do is 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 that part of it. So so thank you for that explanation. I really hope that helps a, a bunch of people. Yeah, I mean during COVID especially, we took a beat down for what we did, and what we did was right. You know, we were trying to save lives and help people. So you know, we take an oath when you become a doctor to help people to save lives. And that's what we did so we can rest at night, you know, not have somebody tell us we can't treat our patients like we want to. So, um, you know, hopefully people will learn a lesson from this. I hope our, our hope everybody learns from this experience that we've been through in the last two years. It's been horrible. Number one, because we're an obese, out of shape country, drug dependent, and also because the healthcare system's controlled by somebody besides the doctor. You know, the doctor-patient relationship is the most important relationship in medicine. And it starts there and it should end there. With all the technology we have, we've got the tools. Um, but, you know, it's kind of being hijacked. Uh, so um, stay tuned. We'll have a lot more to say about that in the future. And I, I guarantee you there's going to be a lot more specialists that are going to convert to this way of practice they're fed up with it and and that really goes to you know it's still it's all leaning towards prevention guys and taking care of your own health and uh and i think that's part of the role of a of a cash only doctor and a cash only practice is to is to partner partner with you on that journey and um and i think a lot of that has to do with the you know the amount of time that they have as well as um the the uh control that they have over the over the visit and what they can do it's uh, not about the money it's about the quality of care you get and the unobstructedness in which you had to practice and if you do it well you'll make better you know so I love to teach other doctors how to do this, you know, uh, because it's not their fault, really. You know, they're really hampered. But anyway, um, we're, um, we're just going to do this one last question, guys. Uh, and this is a this is a fun one because I'm actually I'm actually curious. Uh, this is my friend Mark's uh, question here. What bands what brands of bourbon and rye whiskey do you prescribe for an old fashioned? Uh, this is for medical purposes, of course. Uh, what, what's your, what's your prescription for an old passion? I'm interested. Um, this is a funny question. I'm glad you asked that Mark, because one of my patients that watches this show asked me, <laughs> asked me, do you drink whiskey every night? <laughs> and I go, no, I rarely drink. As you know, Ben, I'm not a drinker. I mean, I, I would classify myself as really a non-drinker. But very occasionally, I never drink beer. I, I don't really like wine much unless it's a real rare special occasion. I'll do a toast. But I'm really not a drinker. You can attest to that I can. fact. I can. I'm just not a drinker. But, you know, occasionally uh, I like the taste somewhat. I don't like the taste of liquor. But an old-fashioned has a little bit of – and the one I like is Woodford. You know, I don't have expensive taste um, with a little bit of um, – I think there's bitters in there, maybe a little simple syrup and an orange peel and a maraschino cherry. You just pour a little bit. You could sip on it all night. And <laughs> I never really feel anything from it, you know, but it's just kind of, I don't know. It's just something to do, you know, <laughs> rarely. But that's a great question. I'm glad I got that in because really it seems like the last few times I have had an old fashioned here. Then I get that question, they, they may think I'm a drinker. I'm really not. The alcohol is really not good for you. 
you know, I'm kind of a health nut and alcohol is not good for anybody, really. <laughs> Maybe a little red wine, you know, is, is not too bad. But uh, anyway, so that's that's a great question. I'm that's... glad I got to explain that. <laughs> And this this is water. It's not it's not any drinks of water. <laughs> uh, Mark, thank you for for that question. It seems Woodford is the is the um, is the uh, I think Woodford's bourbon is it is that is it bourbon? I think it's a bourbon. Uh, is is the bourbon of choice? Uh, guys, I've had so much fun tonight. Um, we're gonna we're gonna call it there. I know I've missed some at the end, so I will get to that. Uh, first thing next week, I, I promise. Uh, I see Christy's question. Uh, we will get to that first thing next week. Um, Doc, I appreciate the time today, man. Uh, it's been a been a blast as always. Uh, Thank you, and man. guys, I love you guys. Uh, everyone who who comes and hang out, uh, hangs out with us on on Tuesday evenings at seven. Uh, we love you. We appreciate you. And uh, we'll be back next week. Next week at seven. You gonna be there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You'll be there. All right, guys. We love you. We'll see you next week. Uh, we had uh, two shows go out. If you uh, go out today, if you haven't checked them out, uh, the Common Sense MD was on brain fog. Uh, talked a lot about L tyrosine and L tryptophan. Uh, we had an explain this episode with Robin Riddle, uh, which was on the low carb diet and her experience. There it is, right there. Uh, be sure to check that out. There's brain fog, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. This has been a blast. Love you. Doc, also AKA Pop. I'll see you. I'll see you probably in the next couple of days. <laughs> okay. See you, Ben. See ya. Night. Don't go away. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode of the podcast. Uh, please share the podcast with your friends. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe. Uh, we will see you guys next time.